This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Because if you can tell me what your habits are, I can tell you what sort of a person you are. I can tell you what your future looks like. But like I always say, life is 10% what happens to you. It's 90% what you do about it. The people who are most effective in the workplace believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past. When people don't believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past, they begin to disengage. You're listening to The Circuit of Success, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve success in every facet of life, only on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Now, your host, Brett Gilliland. Welcome to The Circuit of Success. I'm your host, Brett Gilliland, co-founder and CEO of Visionary Wealth Advisors. And today I've got uh, Rich Diboney on the phone or uh, on the podcast. How you doing? Good. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, it's good to have you. You are a uh, former Navy SEAL. We always love talking to former Navy SEALs. And uh, you also are the uh, author. Like, see that little red book right back there, right? Yeah. Of attributes. Yeah. So, uh, so that's uh, things going well, it looks like. So far, so good. You know, the, the book game this is my first book. And uh, what I'm told is the book game is a long game. So I'm just playing the long game. So uh, long that's game. fine with me. So it's kind of like life, isn't it? Kind of a long game, isn't it? <laughs> it is. If we, I think if we approach it that way, we're, we're better off, right? That's right. Well, we'll dive into the book. We'll dive into some Navy SEAL stuff, just the mental side of training. I'm always fascinated by that. And so are our listeners. But really, the, the, what we always like to start with, Rich, is what's made you the man you are today? I know that's a really big open-ended question, but obviously you don't just wake up and, and become a seal so maybe give us the backstory who is rich and uh, what's made you the man you are today sure yeah well i grew up in connecticut um and one of three other siblings uh, one, one of my okay. siblings is an identical twin brother oh. and um you know my dad was a private pilot and so we used to go flying with him when we were kids all the time like on the weekends and you know we, you know so the love of flying we caught early especially my, my twin brother and i and I think from the age of seven or eight years old, we wanted to be Navy pilots. And, and really, we, we wanted to be military jet pilots, but we figured the Navy guys landed on ships and there was probably nothing harder than landing on a ship. So, right. uh, so we, we aimed, we focused on that. And of course, that was before Top Gun came out. So Top Gun came out after that. And we were, we were of course, sold even, even, right. even more so. Um, yeah, even more sold. So, so the plan was to join the Navy, and um, and it was really right after the first Gulf War uh, that, and I was, I think I was a senior in high school, junior or senior in high school, and um, I saw an article uh, in Newsweek come out about, and it was called Secret Warriors, or about all the special operations forces that are in the military, but also took part, at least in small degree, to the in the war. So they, they you know, they talked about uh, Air Force CJs and PP, uh, 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 CCTs and PJs. They talked about Green Berets, they talked about uh, Rangers, and of course, the, the Navy SEALs and Marine Recon. And I noticed in that article, they had, it was peppered, the, the five or six pages were peppered with different pictures of, of Spec Ops guys in different environments. So you had guys in the snow, in the desert, in the jungle, um, underwater. And what I noticed about the 20 or so pictures was that about 18, 17 or 18 of them, something like that. The, the vast majority of them were Navy SEALs. And the Navy SEALs were like everywhere. They were Navy SEALs in the, in, the, in the snow, Navy SEALs in the jungle, Navy SEALs underwater. And I said to myself, man, these guys do everything. That's pretty cool. And so I started researching them and, and kind of reading as much as I could and ultimately um, went to college, ended up at Purdue University and uh, oh, in the ROTC, uh, yep, in the ROTC program. And, um, and then kind of said to myself, you know, I never wanted to be in the, 
in the cockpit of my jet and look over at a SEAL platoon or some SEAL guys and wonder if I could do it. So um, so I just said, you know, I'm going to try this out. And so I, I, I applied, I got selected and found myself at SEAL training in 96. And, uh, and the rest is history. I mean, obviously 96, my career was from 96 till 2017. And that was obviously a very kinetic period for the military holistically. So, so most of us really feel actually quite lucky because we got to serve and we, we also got to do the job that we came in to do. Uh, so, which is not, which is actually uncommon. It's rare, which which should be uncommon, by the way, war is not a good thing for anybody. So I certainly don't want to uh, promote that piece of it. But, um, but, you know, uh, I was, yeah, I, I was grateful and um, retired in late, you know, December 2016. And uh, since then have been working in the leadership space with a, uh, well, started with a company that's kind of close to you, Chapman and Co from Barry Waymiller, their leadership institute started with them, worked with my buddy, Simon Sinek, uh, start with why fame. Oh, and, yeah. um, and then really have been exploring this kind of side of this human behavior, human performance aspect, which I've been passionate about since day one. So that's really the impetus of the book. So, and here we are today. That's awesome. Well, thank yeah. you for that story. That's, uh, I like that. That's, you know, lots to learn. So what, what do you think you learned the most about you, uh, during hell week? Well, probably it, without, without sounding repetitious is kind of these attributes. What was inside me that I didn't know was inside me. I mean, hell week. Well, so, hell, so buds basic underwater demolition slash seal training is six months long, right? Hell week is only the fifth week right. of the, of, of the, of the course. So, um, so all of buds is a challenge. And of course it, it, it's usually a really hard, the hardest parts are up front at the beginning Then hell week is kind of the, the crucible. And then, and then post hell week, you, it's still tough and it still sucks, but, but they're starting to train you a little bit more. Um, but the thing I loved about buds the most, um, was the purity of the process. Uh, when you go to something like seal training, um, it didn't matter what, where you came from. It didn't matter whether you were the, the all-star sports person or the kid yeah. from the farm. It didn't matter if you were the, the, uh, valedictorian of your class or, someone who just graduated high school, none of that mattered. They basically, the process stripped you down to zero and, and really in some cases, sub zero <laughs> and, and really asked the question, do you have what it takes? And, and it evened everybody out to agree, a degree that was, you don't really find that the purity of those types of things, very many, uh, very many other places. Right. And so, right. and so coming out of that, you know, we started with, I think 160 odd people in our class and graduated 38. And, um, and I think coming out of hell week, we were at, you know, we were at 40, you, you lose most people in that first five weeks to include hell week. That's when you get the most people quitting. Um, so coming out of that, you realize, man, I just, I have gone through something that very few people had, can go through. And you come out of it with what I would define as, as true confidence and true confidence. I would define as just a recognition and an understanding that, um, no matter how much an environment devolves, uh, I will figure it out. I'll be okay. And I'll figure it out. I'll work through it. It might suck and it might be painful, right? right? But I'll still figure it out. And that type of confidence is, is key. And probably the biggest thing that I came out of that training with, and then of course have kept, and you need that as a seal in your career. Right. But of course, I've kept uh, as I've moved on. So I think too, I mean, so much of that is mental. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to talk to anybody in your class that didn't continue. Have you have you followed up with any of those people and see about the psychological side of them and what was it that kind of made them say, I'm out? 
right? I know you yeah. said in the cafeteria, they say, well, that's the most time that you're most susceptible to, to leave because you're warm and you get your clothes and you get your clothes on, you get your, your food. Right. And they're trying to talk yeah. you into it. So what did you learn from those folks? Maybe that did quit. Yeah. It's, and I, and so I talked, of course, I talked to a couple of people from my class, but certainly uh, we, the, the community does a great job of trying to talk to people as they, as they exit the program to kind okay. of drum some of that out as well, just to see if they can get data. Ultimately, however, it's a very subjective decision by everybody. Sure. However, I will give you some things that we theorize. Uh, and one of the one of the things I'll theorize is just uh, it's an inability to compartmentalize effectively. Okay, so so this is why, for example, um, the chow hall uh, is a is a classic place for people kind of decide to quit. Um, and it's because if you you know, there's a saying when you start hell week. So you start. So for your listeners, you start hell week on a Sunday afternoon. They break you out in grandiose fashion. You know, yelling, screaming, machine gun blank uh, blanks, grenade simulators, all that. It's just it's a chaos. It's basically chaos. And um, you so you break out Sunday afternoon and you go from Sunday afternoon till Friday afternoon is when they finish hell week. And during that time frame, you sleep maybe two or three hours for the entire week. You know, other than that, you're just doing insane exercise stuff. You're just doing, you know, ridiculous stuff. It's just grueling. Um, there's a saying though, that if you think about Friday on Monday, you're going to quit, right? Because, because this idea that you're, you're, you're trying to eat the whole elephant, right? You're not able yeah. to effectively focus on very small chunks. And, um, and I think what happens to some guys is that, for example, they get in the chow hall and they begin to, in the chow hall, focus on what's coming next. Uh, when you're warm in the chow hall, the last thing you want to focus on is how cold it's going to be in the next 30 minutes when you're done eating, right? I remember right. being in the chow hall and all, the only thing I was focused on was my food. <laughs> you know, I was like, mm, this food is good. I don't care. I don't, I don't, I'm not even going to think about what's next. I'm just going to think about this food. And then of course, what's next, you just, when they move you on, you move on. And so I think the ability to kind of chunk moments and an environment into what's what's productive to focus on in the moment is a quality that every guy needs to get through SEAL training. But ironically, and kind of, you know, this whole thing is kind of laced with an unconscious genius. It's, um, it's also extraordinarily valuable in combat too, because in combat, you have to prioritize massively and you have to basically yeah. effectively think about what, what you need to think about in the moment. Because if you think about too many other things, you're going to get you're, you're going to get distracted. So I think it trains you to do that in the most extreme environments. So talk to us about this, um, you know, our culture, right? It's so important. I, I am a co-founder and CEO, as I said earlier, of a, of a visionary wealth advisors, an investment firm. And, and so but we have offices, you know, seven locations and, and I'm just speaking that because that's what we do, but other people, you have your own culture, right? Inside of your company, but yet during this COVID time, we've all been away from each other. And so what are you learning from people you're talking to? Maybe what are you training people on? How do we, how do we keep that culture even though we're not together right now? Yeah, it's a great question and a great problem. And I think we've, so the, the benefit is we're learning a lot, right? Uh, because we're in an environment we've never experienced. I think one of the things I'm finding that I'm hearing people say is that, uh, is that the culture, um, the culture is what it is. And it, it becomes very apparent when you start getting into these environments of, of challenge and uncertainty, such as COVID, when you start, you know, kind of fracturing, suddenly you're all you're all working virtually. Well, the, the culture starts to show up. You see how people behave and, and the behavior of the culture starts to show through the, the zoom, the zoom screens and things like that. So that's one you can, we, every business owner, um, that's had to shift like this can actually 
do a little bit of an autopsy on how their culture was uh, by by examining how the culture has has uh, either survived or failed or or even thrived in this environment. Um, so that's one. Um, the other thing is it's I think it's it's uh, it's teaching us the value of of human interaction and communication. Obviously, the the human interaction um, connection is that I mean that's biological. We need that face to face contact. That's I mean human beings are social creatures. So right. so the lack of that is is going to wear and tear on us all, no matter what. But it takes a more proactive approach when it's across the the computer screen. Um, in terms of showing people that you actually care for them in a culture, if it's care, if it's a culture of caring and trust, um, there you know, the companies who kind of continually establish that um, and did so prior to COVID find themselves uh, doing more of this over Zoom. You know, um, spending time. You know, a buddy of mine likes to say, uh, "Time is the currency of leadership." You know, and it's mm-hmm. true because time is everybody has the same. It's a, it's an it's an equal commodity. No one has more time than the other per- than any other person, right? And once you spend it, it's gone. And so when you choose to spend time with another human being, especially those in your span of care, um, in a business or a team, that shows them that you care about them. That shows them that you care about them in a way that's that's f- fairly quantifiable because right. you're spending time. And you can do that virtually as well as you can um, face-to-face. So that's another important fa- factor I think all of us have to remember. Leadership and... Um, and care can be expressed across a computer screen. Uh, it just takes effort and deliberacy and intent. Yeah, I love that. Time is the currency of leadership. We talk about that a lot too, is that you can't replace FaceTime. And I don't mean right. the app on the iPhone, right? But that, that yeah. mano mano, but to your point of just doing this, I, I yeah. was with one of our guys in our Overland Park, Kansas office last week, going over some stuff and we did a Zoom call and it was nice seeing them, right? We can see and talk yeah. and communicate. And, and uh, I think that's very powerful. So I, I appreciate that insight. So um, I saw something uh, when I was doing my research on you, you talked about anxiety plus an- uncertainty equals fear. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. So let's <laughs> talk about that. Yeah. Fear. I, I think fear is fascinating. And so I've, I, since retiring, I met a, uh, a buddy of mine. He's a Stanford neuroscientist out at, uh, in, in Northern California. His name is Dr. Andrew Huberman. And he and I gelled on this right here. Uh, there, yeah, made for. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> um, the, so and he and I gelled on this concept because he he actually had a, he has a lab there uh, where he studies fear, and so we began to really talk about fear and what it is and what makes it up. And and fear is um, certainly a physiological response, but it starts in the brain. You know, that's where fear starts, and so it's basically an uh, it's an inability to process the environment. Um, so. Uh, so when you talk about the two elements that make up fear, it's anxiety plus uncertainty. Okay. If you have one or the other, you don't necessarily have fear, right? You can have anxiety without uncertainty. So that might be someone who's nervous about giving the presentation at work next week, right? Knows exactly when it's going to be given, knows exactly what to do, has the presentation ready to go, but is just a little bit anxious about it. Okay. There's no fear there. It's just some anxiety. Um, you can be uncertain without being anxious. Okay. That's basically every kid on Christmas Eve. All right. So uh, so that doesn't, that's not fear either. When you start to combine the two, however, that's when the fear response starts to kick in. That's when our amygdala starts to, our, and our autonomic system starts to, uh, starts to kind of boil and bubble. Um, and we start to, we start to be faced with two choices and we've, we've all heard actually three choices. We've heard fight, flight, or flee, uh, no, excuse me, fight, flight, or freeze. Right. Um, Freeze is actually, you know, fight is to is to 
deliberately step into the fear. It's not necessarily put your dupes up, right? It's I'm, I'm stepping into my fear. Um, flee is obviously, uh, is, you know, step away, retreat from the fear and then, and then freeze they've, they've found neurologically is simply a pause. It's an oscillation where one is trying to decide which way to go fight or flight. Um, the interesting thing is when you begin to, when you choose either direction, a different circuit in the brain fires off. Okay. Um, and the cool thing about when you choose the fight response, when you choose to deliberately step into your fear, uh, you get a dopamine reward by doing so it's and that's really what Huberman kind of nicknamed the, the courage circuit right that that's that that flip is that switch is flipped and you get a, a dopamine reward it says hey this is good keep going this is by evolutionary design we were designed as human beings as explorers you know discoverers you know to go out and find stuff right it's, it's, it's what's caused us to go from cave dwellers to space explorers in such a relatively mm-hmm. short period of time um the neat thing is, while most people assume dopamine happens at the very end of a goal, at the end of an objective or an outcome, that's not the case. It actually happens every step you take. So every every forward step you take into your fear, you get that dopamine reward because it's designed by evolution to keep us going, to keep looking for the new shelter, to keep looking for the new food, not to stop at every step. So this encourages us, you know, quite literally, to have courage. Um, and, um, and I talk about courage as one of the attributes, but it's one of these... Um, things that we can actually practice and do, um, and we can actually feel those responses. Um, quick note on fear, though, because I know most people are interested. Hey, if I start getting fearful, how do I stop being fearful? <laughs> right. right? right. The, the quick trick is to control one of those two elements, if not both. Okay. Anxiety is internal. Okay. It's coming from an internal response, right? So it's physiological, which means you can control it with internal physiological things. Breathing, helps you shift from sympathetic to parasympathetic. That helps your anxiety. Uh, there are some visual tools that you can use, and Huberman talks about some. One common one is this thing called open gaze, which is basically the idea that you're staring out ahead of you, and instead of focusing on something, you're just kind of noticing your peripheries, right? That immediately has been shown to start shifting your physiology into a, into a parasympathetic, so you're kind of coming off that autonomic response. Yeah. So you can manage anxiety that way internally. Or you can try to manage the uncertainty, which uncertainty is now external. That's all the stuff external to us. Um, the way that we always did that in the teams is something we called control your three foot world, right? Focus on something that you can control and move towards it and ignore things that you can't control. We often get caught up in worrying about things that we have no control over, and that is detrimental on all levels. Um, but if you can pick something to focus on and control it, kind of like I just talked about with, with Hell Week, I'm going to focus on this. I've suddenly taken control of my world and yep. and decreased the uncertainty. So there's tricks to how to uh, to how to kind of disable or at least degrade your fear response by taking control of those two aspects. And I, I find that to be fascinating as well. I, I wear a whoop. I don't know if that's a whoop you got there yeah, in your right hand. Yep. Okay, yes, yeah, so I got my whoop on as well. And so, but it's one of those things. Like I find I'm, I've historically been a pretty anxious, nervous person. Uh, I've learned how to deal with it, how to channel it in the right directions. But I have found more. I think that my body is is fighting it more during the day than I even knew uh, because of the the whoop, right? Yeah. And, and talking about all the the big words you're using and all the stuff, right? Is I find that. And so how do you, how do you how do you? And, and I do the meditation. I do the breathing. I you know talk about the gazing off in distance things similar to that. Like how do you how do you fix that though? And I know you're not the the end all be all answer guy on how to fix fear. Or, yeah. You know, like, 
the world by now, right? But well, again, so I'm so I'm not sure if you can fix fear. I think I think what you're doing is is you're you're moving with it, right? Um, yeah. And I, I think that's the best we can do. We are designed to fear is not a bad thing. I mean, again, anxiety and fear specifically, but just let's take anxiety and stress. That agitation in our system is by design. You know, when we are hungry. Mm our body begins to feel stressed and agitated. That's a, that's a signal to our brain to go find food, right? When we're lonely, our body starts to feel depressed and agitated, agitated and stressed. That's a signal for us to go find companionship. This is by evolutionary design. So first thing we can do is reframe what stress actually is, okay? Yeah. Stress is designed to get us moving and to get, and to get us stepping forward. Fear is designed to keep us safe, <laughs> you know? Right. So, uh, so we, we can look at the fear and we say, this is designed, this is by evolutionary design to keep us safe. Now, sometimes in this modern society where there's not a lot of external things trying to kill us, right? Um, we become afraid about things that maybe we shouldn't be afraid of. I mean, it's not like we're going to get chased by bears walking down the street. So maybe, you know, for the, for the single person who wants to start a conversation with that attractive individual they see in the grocery store, well, even though they feel fearful, that might not be the right response, okay? Because because again, if you reframe it, it's like, listen, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna die doing this. True, yeah. My survival is not at stake at this. Yeah, sure, I might be embarrassed, but at least I will have tried, right? So so reframing um, is a really great way to begin to work with and inside the fear and anxiety, but also understanding when we start to feel anxious or fearful, understand this is by evolutionary design. Pay attention to it um, because it could be something we have to think about. Um, one of the best pieces of advice I got as a junior officer, uh, in fact, was uh, a, a senior officer who told me, hey, Rich, always be beware the fearless leader because that guy is probably going to get you killed. All right. Uh, because if someone doesn't have fear, that's a scary thing. Right. <laughs> you know? That's true. That's a good uh, point. Yeah. You have to be your know, fear is designed to allow us to see appropriate risk. You know, it just becomes detrimental if we start reading too much into it um, and and it and it stalls us. So I want to talk about optimal performance versus peak performance in, in a second, but talk to me about the whoop that you wear and like what, what you're learning from that and helping our listeners, you know, they don't have to go out and buy a whoop tomorrow, but, um, but if they do, they can obviously, but, um, and we're not getting paid by whoop to do this, but we're talking about it. <laughs> yeah. and, and so, but what are you learning from that? Like from a sleep, you know, water intake, what's, what's the biggest learnings you're, you're taking away? Yeah, well, admittedly, I just started wearing this, so I'm still learning. Okay. I'm going to actually be on the Whoop podcast here soon, so, awesome. so I want to. So I want to make sure I wore it and and learned about it. Tell um, Will Ahmed to come on here, my, okay. my podcast. He's he's, he's responded through Instagram, Timmy, but I can't get the dang guy to call me or uh, email me back about it. So. <laughs> All right, I'll mention it. I'll mention. All right. it. Um, I am inter I'm, I'm I'm enjoying it because it's showing me things that I uh, I'm I typically don't track. I mean, I do like looking at my sleep. I do like yeah. looking at the. Um, the strain and the HRV um, and um, and heart rate stuff. Uh, I still, admittedly, need to dive a little bit more into into kind of analyzing what yeah. it's telling me. I'm only on I think day three or four, so it's still oh, kind okay. of collating yeah. all this stuff. But I am wearing it and um, and I'm looking at it when I sleep. One of the things I do like immediately about it is when I can when I wake up and it shows you know sleep disturbances. Yeah, it, show, it breaks down deep sleep versus REM sleep versus. Uh, uh, light sleep. Cause, cause again, people don't, sometimes people don't realize that our sleeps are, our sleep is in cycles. So we're, we're constantly doing this. So we're going kind of light sleep, going into de uh, REM into deep and then coming out again, almost every 90 minutes. So, so to be able to see that and how effective it is, is making me pay attention more and go to bed a little bit earlier, yeah. uh, which is, which is good. Maybe not have that one more beer, right? 
Well, I've, yeah, that's a good point. I've stopped having beer for a while because the pandemic, I was having too many. <laughs> that, that's right. <laughs> so, exactly. you know, yeah. It's funny. I found that my, uh, the, through Whoop, my, my body likes vodka more than beer and wine more than beer. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. if you want to have that one drink, you know, at home or something like that, it's now at least knowing what you want to have. And so it's been nice to, to, to see that. So, um, but anyway, we talked about the, uh, earlier I talked about optimal performance versus peak performance. Yeah. And again, I loved how you talked about that. Cause if, if I'm climbing and I get to the peak, what's next, right. I'm going right. down, right. You can only go down. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so the optimal living is, uh, so tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, there's another thing that um, that Huberman and I gelled on immediately because we were actually ironically at a peak performance uh, kind of conference symposium, kind of something we were doing for some C-suite executives. And we both began to talk and and gel on this idea that neither of us were, well, not so much didn't like, but weren't as comfortable with with peak as a definition of performance. I got all the time, hey, you SEALs are the, are the most peak performing individuals on the planet. You guys got to be the best at it, right? right? And I would say, no, we're not. You know, again, peak is an apex from which you can only come down. And peak has to be prepared for, scheduled, planned, um, and, uh, and, and probably trained for and prepared for, right? Um, the pro football player spends his entire week preparing to peak for three hours on Sunday, okay? Um, we can all do this, okay? If you do have to give that presentation at work next week, you could certainly plan and prepare so that you can peak for that presentation period during that time. I always felt like SEALs, and I think this is life, right? We're more optimal performers. And optimal performance is, how can I do the very best I can in the moment? Whatever the best might look like, okay? Um, sometimes the best looks like peak. It looks like flow states and everything's cool and, 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 and clicking. Other times it might be like, hey, I'm just taking step by step, head down, step by step. That's all I can do right now. Yeah. Um, I would I would often think when we first started talking about this uh, of me in the surf zone, freezing my butt off in SEAL training, right? right? There was nothing peak about my performance during that time frame. I was just doing the very best I could, which was not to quit, you know, and, and not to freeze, right? Um, combat is like that. Life is like that. I mean, so, so optimal performance allows for and speaks to this very kind of healthy modulation in our systems where it says, Hey, we're not going to, you're not going to need to peak all the time. Okay. You know, sometimes you just need to be steady state. Sometimes you're going to be low. Sometimes you're going to be a peak. Right. Um, but if you, if you strive to do the best you can in the moment, that gives you some leeway to appropriately apply peak performance when it's, when it's needed, appropriately, appropriately recover when it's needed, and then appropriately pat yourself on the back when things get really, really crappy, um, just like they did for all of us in 2020. I would imagine that most people can look back at 2020 and probably not define their performance as peak. Okay. Right. Very few, most of us were just doing the best we could with this very uncertain, unknown environment. And we were all doing optimal performance. So when you think about that, the, the 2020, what, what did you learn during this whole pandemic, you know, professionally, but personally as well? Yeah. Well, it was ironic for me because I, I was writing the book. In fact, I, I finished the first draft uh, right as we all went into quarantine. And so I was doing edits as we were all kind of quarantined. Um, and I realized, man, this is interesting because um, the, the premise of the book is stems from this idea that I, I thought of just based on SEAL training. And, and one, of the, one of the examples I give is, is this idea that in SEAL training in BUDS, you spend hundreds of hours running with boats on your head 
uh, you spend hundreds of hours PTing with 300 pound telephone poles on your shoulder and stuff. And you spend hundreds of hours freezing in the surf zone. Um, and then I look at my 21 year career in the SEAL teams, right? And I did hundreds of combat missions and I did thousands upon thousands of training evolutions. And never on one of those did I carry a boat on my head or a 300 pound telephone pole on my shoulder, right? So, so what they were doing to us in SEAL training was not training us to be Navy SEALs, all right? Um, it was basically teasing out attributes. It was done to tease out attributes that allowed them to see if we had the attributes it took to be a Navy SEAL. Right. This is what challenge, uncertainty, and, and stress do, is they, they tease out these attributes because skills don't really apply in unknown situations. Right. So, so COVID was kind of, for all of us, it was a version of SEAL training. The, the two big differences for all of us was that none of us volunteered to be there, okay, mm -hmm. like you do at SEAL training, and none of us had the option to quit like you do at SEAL training. So, so all of us were stuck in this environment where these attributes were being teased out and whether we were conscious of it or unconscious of it, we learned things about ourselves that we didn't know before because we were thrown into an uncertain environment. That's incredible. What a, what a great time to bring this book out, huh? See, yeah, it's a kind of, it, it really was, it felt, it felt pretty right. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, it was a good, cool, cool time what do to you, talk about. What do you hope that somebody, you know, picks that up today in the bookshelf and, and they say, I'm, I'm going to read this book. What, what, what's the one thing you hope they get from it? I know there's lots of attributes, right? But what's yeah. that one thing for you? Uh, so for me, it's a, uh, it's this idea that, you know, again, especially in today's environment where uh, unity is so important. Okay. We all have to remember that we're human beings. However, um, we're, we, we all come with different, we all come with differences. So in the automobile analogy, you know, we're all cars, but some of us, is, some of us are Jeeps, some of us are Ferraris, some of us are F SUVs. Yep. Um, now there's no judgment, right? Because the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do. And the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do. Uh, the trick is lifting our hood and figuring out what we are and what our engine looks like. This is where the attributes come in. My hope is that someone will read the book and be able to lift their own hood and figure out where they fall on these attributes, because then they can understand better how they show up and behave, uh, both in regular life and also in certainty. And that'll do two things. First of all, it'll make sure that you kind of, the individual, the reader can understand, hey, it looks like I'm a Jeep and it looks like I'm appropriately on a Jeep track. I'm not racing my Jeep on the, on the Ferrari track. Okay, so that's good. Sure. Or they might say, actually, I'm a Jeep and I'm trying to race on a Ferrari track. I need to change, you know, or vice versa. Um, so that's one. The other thing is that you can develop attributes. You just can't do that. You can't develop them the same way you can develop a skill. An attribute uh, needs to be developed. It has to be self-motivated, self-directed, and it has to take a deliberate, conscious decision to step into challenge, discomfort, and uncertainty. So, um, so for example, if someone is impatient and wants to develop patience, uh, that person needs to decide to do it and then deliberately throw themselves into environments that test their patience, that, that allow them to be patient, to try out being patient. It's going to be tough. It's going to be uncomfortable. But someone can say to themselves, hey, I'm, I'm coming up low on this one attribute and I want to have more of it. I'm going to deliberately try to develop that. So I think those are the takeaways I'd like readers to take. And I think that's good. So let's keep, uh, let's stay there for a second. So I always say I want to be more patient. I heard early on one time in my professional career, it said, but don't, don't ever pray for patience because then God's going to put you in places where you got to be patient. Uh, but, but my, you know, I, I'm my home, my wife, I got four boys. It's crazy. Right. And yeah. in, in a good way, but I'm always practicing being more patient, but I'm still not very patient. So, yeah. so how do I become better at that? Well, so I would not, and again, I, you know, I, I tried to stay general because I'm not a psychologist on this stuff, sure. right? But um, here's what I would, here's what I would say in my, 
generalistic view is that I think, uh, you know, so there's, a, there's a, there's a progression in, in when you learn anything and the progression goes in it's four stages, right? It's, it's unconscious incompetence, i.e. I don't know how bad I am. It's, it's conscious incompetence, right? I know how bad I am now, you know, um, then you move to conscious competence, which means I'm getting better, but I have to think about it. Yep. And then the fourth is unconscious competence. Now I'm, I'm good and I don't have to think about it anymore. All right. My, my, hypothesis is that uh, when developing an attribute, you can likely get yourself up to probably conscious competence, it may be difficult to get yourself into unconscious competence. And the reason is because context matters. Um, you can probably find yourself uh, find yourself more easily being patient at home with your kids. Um, put you on a playground with a bunch of other kids and you might not have any patience at all. The patience right. might be degraded, right? Or put you in traffic and your patience might be degraded, right? So, so, so context and subjectivity matter, um, especially when it comes to attributes. So I would, I would encourage people if they want to develop or if you want to develop your patience, develop it in the context that you want to develop it. And then just understanding uh, that you're not patient will actually help you with your patience because you can go into an environment and you can start seeing things boil over in a way that's going to test your patience. You're like, okay, I, the, 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 the feeling I feel in myself that's boiling up, that's my impatience. And that's, that alone is a, is a wonderful place to be because the, the, to be able to, to take that response from an unconscious act through the conscious frontal lobe thought process is in essence, helping you deal with it better. Awareness. Awareness is key, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to say these words here real quick. I want you to define them when, when you hear me say these words. So when you hear me say grit, what comes to mind? Uh, grit is a combination of, of things. It's not just one thing. Um, and again, I talk about the four things, the four elements of grit, right? Which are courage, perseverance, adaptability, and resilience. Those four things catalyzed and blended make up grit. And grit is the ability to kind of push through and step through and persevere more short, short term kind of stuff. You know, if, I, if we start going long term, I, I start thinking, I start talking about drive. It's more of a long term objective thing. But it's the ability to kind of step through and push through challenges, toughness, stress, whatever it is, kind of in those short spurts is how I would define grit. And an easy find for those listening is go to Rich's Instagram and you can click the underneath your bio there. And it'll pop up some different things here on some podcasts, but also you can take the grit assessment, right? Yes. So I took that today, yeah. which was awesome. Um, and so I, I was surprised I was a medium. I, I thought yeah. I would be higher, right? So, so walk me through that. So a, a test of medium, what, what does that mean? Well, so medium is pretty good because, you know, because okay. at least you have some grit again. So just a, a caveat on the assessment and you can go to the website and take all three, right? Grit, mental acuity or drive. We, what we did there is we basically designed a bunch of questions um, that were uh, that were apropos to measuring each attribute. But then we we bursted out to about a thousand people worldwide and then got that data back. And so so when you take the assessment, what you're getting is you're getting you're getting your level of perseverance or adaptability or whatever yep. based on a comparison to a thousand other people. Okay. That's okay. the best we can actually do in an assessment because really when it comes to attributes, the most accurate assessment of attributes are situational, environmental, and experiential. I could better assess your grit if I put you into a situation that required you to exercise grit. If I threw you into SEAL training down in Coronado, I'd start to see what kind of grit you had. But again, in that context of SEAL training, right? Um, you know, you obviously as a business owner have a, 
a lot of grit in that context as well, because you're a successful business owner and you're doing that for a while. Um, medium grit, you know, again, so I would say you, you should have got four results. So what was your result for courage, perseverance, adaptability, and, and resilience? You know, you can be, you could be a little higher on a couple and a little lower, and that still balances out pretty nicely. Yeah. You can be high on all of them and that's cool. You can be low at all and maybe you want to work on, but that would probably, if you were low on all of them, that would probably show up. You'd probably be able to say, okay, I see why, right, <laughs> you know? right. but I would encourage anybody who takes it to, to not look at grit holistically as much as look at each attribute, um, individually, because you can, you can work, you can work. It's more easy to work on each attribute individually than it is to kind of work on grit holistically. Good. Uh, how do you define uh, happiness? Uh, Happiness, I be, I would define it as as human well being. You know, if you if you feel as a human like you are, well, you you have everything's kind of a sense of security, safety, and love. I think for me that's happiness. You know, um, you know my family when I'm sitting with my family that's happiness. You know, when I'm with good friends that's happiness. Yep. So uh, so that's that's how I would define it. Yep. So if I were to uh, ask you this question, which I'm going to, I don't know why I said that, but uh, the fear. So you talked about it earlier. We talked about it earlier. I always ask the guests this, um, how many of the fears you put in your mind, right, right up here, how many of them actually blew up to the magnitude you put them in your mind to be? Well, uh, the, the, the quick answer is very, very few, right. um, very few. Uh, I can't, uh, I, I can't remember even in the, even in the throes of combat, I can't remember ever, uh, feeling fear to the extent that I was paralyzed. And perhaps that was part, you know, obviously I brought attributes to the table, obviously my training and things like that. Um, but fear, again, fear starts in the brain. It's our perception of an environment. Um, and it's our perception of what's uncertain and what's making us anxious and uncertain about our environment. So we can begin to well, all, most of us magnify that quite a bit because we start to presume or assume things about the environment that just aren't true and don't exist. So, um, so what's the acronym um, for fear? Uh, False evidence is appearing real. There you go. Right. So, yeah. so that is that is accurate in the sense that is it, fear is all about human perception and how we perceive things. It's why that it's why things that make me afraid might not make you afraid, and things that make you afraid might not make me afraid. Right? Because it's all about how we we perceive it. So, so when we start to understand that we can control that to the extent that we can control our perception of things, um, and even the way we frame things, um, we can begin to control fear. I think we, we all get a, a better sense of self-control and, and, and self-power. So, um, if I followed you around for the day with a camera, what, what are some things that I would see that there's no way you're going to miss on a daily basis? I always say hugging my wife and kids is I'm knowing in a wit. That's important. That's important. That's that happens multiple times, especially now that I'm home. Really, right. it's really nice. I'm always I always try to get outside at least once, even if the weather's bad. Yeah. Um, um, I have you know I try to I try to get my pulse up, you know, in some, in one way or another. And I'm not talking about anger. Yeah, <laughs> I'm right. talking about exercise uh, right. in one way or the other on a daily basis. Um, uh, and I think that's, those are, I think those are probably the, I, I should probably admittedly have a little, a few more kind of, you know, um, no hold, like kind of, um, uh, no miss items, no, no miss items. Right. Uh, I would love to read every day, you know, more if I could, I, I do read, but I'd like to read more often. So there's probably a list of stuff I probably want to do, do better. But I think those three things are probably the, the top besides your own book attributes. What's, uh, what's the, if you can't recommend that one, what's the best book you'd recommend? 
Gosh, you know, uh, so I love I love books that allow a a different optic on anything, uh, but especially human behavior. And so one of my favorite books is Sapiens by Harari, um, okay. where he talks about the basically the evolution of the the what is it called a short history of mankind. Uh, okay, yeah, something like that. Anyway, he talks about the evolution of of humans as a species. Um, from optics that are just incredible. Uh, so I love those types of ideas. I love um, uh, Nassim Taleb's work. He wrote Anti-Fragile. He wrote um, The Black Swan. I love his work. Um, I love, uh, you know, here's what I don't read enough and I would encourage people to, I don't read enough fiction. Um, I find myself, you know, in fact, I would say, ask me several years ago, I was probably a little bit snobby about it. I was like, well, I don't have time for fiction. It doesn't, right. doesn't teach me anything. But what I've realized is that fiction actually, as long as it's not used, as long as it's not overused, I mean, some people use fiction like they use television, right? It's just yeah. to escape. But fiction, when used appropriately, actually, it sparks creativity, you know, in a, in a way that, uh, that nonfiction doesn't. So I need to read more fiction. Uh, that's one of the one of the goals I have is to read more fiction as I as I progress, because I used to read, you know, fiction all the time when I was a kid. Right. I just have to get back into it. Yeah, but you got a lot of books back there, so I'm sure there's a choice. I guarantee you, I've read the the jacket of every one of those books. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that. I got so tired of being the guy that had, you know, like to your point, I got bookshelves at home that I haven't even read the books, and so all these books back here that you can't even see that are off camera, I've yeah. read every single one of these. Oh, and nice. In April of 2016. I said, I'm tired of being that guy, right? So I said, 10 pages a day. And that 10 pages a day has just, it blossoms into, you know, 20 to 25 books a year yeah. on human performance. Yeah. yeah. You know, and yeah. so uh, I always say, you know, if, if Rich reads 50 books in the next two years and I read zero, who's got a better shot at winning? I totally agree. And so I'm going to, I'm going to take that advice, by the way, I'm going to try, I'm going to commit to, to myself to try to do 10 pages a day, but I agree. I think every single successful person I've ever encountered, the one common commonality is they read, you know? That's right. Um, so yeah, so I yeah, just gave a talk a few weeks ago and I was doing some research for it. I think it was Henry Ford said, not all leaders, I'm sorry, not all readers lead, but all leaders read. Yes. And I thought that was powerful. And, and I, I did this in May of 19. I just said, you know, 10 pages a day, that's 20 books a year, right? It's 36, uh, 3,650 pages. Fast forward five years, that's 18,250 pages and about a hundred books. Yeah. Just in five yeah. years. Right. You yeah. know, so anyway, uh, I kind of beat that drum a lot on this podcast. And if I speak anywhere, that's what I'm talking about, but it, it's, it's knowledge is power. And, and there's so much you know clarity I get from reading. And I think it's yeah. really, really powerful. So I agree. I um, agree. So if I steal your cell phone from you, I take this thing and, and I, I can't delete your, uh, I won't delete your pictures or your email or calendar or something like that. But what, is there anything on your phone there that you just right now for you, for business, for life that you got to have, that's really powerful for you? Uh, probably my podcast app. I love, I love listening to podcasts. That's yeah. one thing I do. I try to do more frequently um, is just listen where I can't read any, any kind of net time that I have, yeah. whether it's driving or flying or whatever. I try to listen to, um, to podcasts. Now I don't like, I don't do it in the gym when I'm working out. I listen to music because I do, I do believe in, I do believe in escapism to a certain degree. I think there needs yeah. to be a balance. Um, because, uh, even just escaping to some music allows my brain to start spending on things that yeah. otherwise it wouldn't if I'm listening to someone. But, uh, but yeah, other than that, I, you know, I try to stay off the phone other than using it as a, as a practical 
utility working tool, device. working device. I try to stay off of it as an entertainment device um, because, uh, because again, I, I found for me again, for, this is for me, I found that um, I have to limit the amount of escapism I engage in because it wastes a lot of my time, you know, and, yep. and sometimes, um, sometimes even escaping to my phone, whether it's a, a game or something, um, doesn't even allow me to get to escape inside my head. And I think it's important. I think most people deny themselves the opportunity of escaping into their head once in a while, just to process ideas and think, you know, uh, I remember when I was a kid, you know, again, we're, we're probably roughly the same age. We grew up and there weren't really any Walkmans or video games right. or even cell phones. And, I, and my, my dad, we used to go on, on family trips and we'd drive in the car, right? So these are 18, 20 hour drives. And I'd stay in the back, I'd be in the back seat and I'd stare out the window for 18 hours. I'd be staring at the window yeah. and I'd just think and I'd visualize and I'd dream and I'd, yeah. you know, and, um, and to this day I can sit on an airplane and I don't need anything. I can just look out the window. I usually need a window seat, but, <laughs> but I can look yeah. out the window and what I, what I find that that allows me to do is think about things and really come up with ideas. And so, and so a lot of the ideas I came up with and come up with, and even so, a lot of stuff in the book are stuff that I just think about either flying on an airplane or when I go jogging, I run. And, you know, nowadays I don't run for any type of competitiveness whatsoever. <laughs> in fact, I, my, the, the, the philosophy on my runs is I start out slow and I finish eventually. Um, <laughs> But running for me is therapeutic, you know, and running right. for me is a great thinking time, you know, and so I, I think while I run. So all these things are, are times where people need to, I think I would encourage them to put down their devices and yeah. just be in their head a little bit. Um, and that's even to include podcasts and books, just be in their head and think about things for themselves, ask questions and process and ask them, hey, ask themselves, hey, what do I think about this? Or what else can I think about? And it's just a really, I think, important tool uh, that a lot of people deny themselves. Yeah. That's great. I worry about that for our children. You know, you think yeah. about when we go, if you went on a 12 hour car ride now, there, there's no way in heck they're going to look out the window for 12 hours. Like you yeah. and I did as kids. Right. Right. Yeah. I agree. So, I agree. Got to focus on that. So, uh, where do our listeners find more uh, of you? So, uh, social media website, uh, obviously you can get the book at really anywhere. Yeah, you get the book anywhere. Uh, yes, I'm on, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, um, and yeah, theattributes.com. If you go to theattributes.com, you have all the links to all the social media there as well. You can get the book there. Uh, you can take the assessment there for free. It's up there for free. And sign up for a newsletter. We're starting to put those out too. Um, so awesome. people can kind of stay stay involved. And, um, and I'm going to be putting up on the site here sh shortly some workbooks that allow people to uh, guide basically on how to how to develop each attribute, you know, cause I know oh, that's wow. the next, that's the next question I've been getting is how, how do I develop perseverance or how do I develop self-efficacy? And yeah. so I've developed some workbooks to help people if they want to develop an attribute, things they can do to kind of deliberately develop each attribute. So that's, that's coming here soon. So all that stuff you can find at theattributes.com. Um, and uh, yeah, appreciate anybody who looks it up. Absolutely. Well, Rich, thanks for being on the circuit of success. It's been great having you. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Tune in next week for another episode of The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.